Today on Moody Presents with Mark Job. Along with our call to Jesus is a call to expect that there will be some persecution at some level or another in our life. Are you prepared? Many of us would probably say we have a good plan for many different scenarios intended to harm us or our property. But would you say we're prepared for a spiritual attack? It's an important topic that we'll explore much deeper today. Hey, welcome to Moody Presents with Pastor Mark Job, president of Moody Bible Institute and senior pastor of New Life Community Church in Chicago. I'm John Geiger inviting you to head with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Now here, the Apostle Peter and those with him were under attack. Let's get started. And here's Pastor Mark. The Apostle Peter is speaking to a group of people that's undergoing attack. And they're living in a antagonistic culture to the gospel. Many scholars believe that Nero, the infamous, psychotic Nero, was the emperor of those days, and so Christians weren't the most popular. There was a degree of persecution happening, and uh, the book of 1 Peter is written in that context of surviving in an antagonistic culture. But in chapter 5, the apostle Peter, he turns his attention to leaders. And he starts talking to leaders about what it means to be the kind of leader that God has called them to be. In the first part of chapter 5 is addressing elders and not lording it over the people, the attitude of a spiritual leader, how they should be, what they should focus on. And then he turns to address everybody. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but he shows favor to the humble humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up if you're taking notes write this down If you're gonna survive a spiritual attack it starts by embracing an attitude of humility there's no greater weapon to fight off a spiritual attack than this attitude of humility. Humility is not being a doormat. Humility is not not having an opinion. But humility is having a right assessment of ourselves before an awesome God. Understanding who we are before God and in light of others. By the way, he says, be clothed In other words, he's not saying act like you're humble. Don't put on a facade of humility. That's not the idea here. He says be clothed. It's a rare word that refers to really what the slaves would put on an apron so that they could serve other people. In other words, he's saying have a disposition, have a disposition of a servant's mindset of humility before others and before God if you're going to survive the spiritual attack. And why is this so important? Why is this so key? Because... The best way to fall flat on your face, the quickest way to have a major breakdown and major inroads for the enemy is to let the seed of pride begin to swell up within your soul and sabotage your spiritual destiny. The thing about pride is that there's certain sins that are obvious and we can all point to. Oh, he's getting high. Oh, he got drunk. Oh, he's sleeping with his girlfriend. 
Uh, he committed adultery. Oh, he stole some money. And there are certain sins that they're, they're pretty obvious. But there's something insidious about pride. It's like carbon monoxide in a household. It's invisible and it's odorless. And here in Chicago, we've had stories of entire families that are found dead in their apartment because, because carbon monoxide filled their house. They couldn't smell it. They couldn't see it. And before they realized it, they had succumbed to the poison within their souls. It's the poison. It's like the poison of pride. And in the Christian culture, it can easily manifest itself because if you're following the rules, if, you, if your theology, if you perceive that your theology is right and you're crossing your T's right and dotting your I's and you're living up to a standard, it can easily seep into our soul. How does it manifest itself? It manifests itself how we look at others. When other people fall, if we're full of pride, we show very little empathy or compassion. We show judgment and harsh criticism. When other people disagree with us, we lambast them as though our opinion is the only opinion and the right opinion. When other people talk about their vulnerabilities and weaknesses, we stay silent because we don't want to show any sort of crack in our armor. If you're doing really good, you develop the attitude of a Pharisee. By the way, the religious people of the days of Jesus were the most antagonistic against, against Jesus, and they were known for their superficial spirituality and religious pride that looked down at other people that struggled. As God raises you to be spiritual leaders, I don't want you to forget this exhortation. Listen to me very, very well. God opposes the proud. In fact, this word that God opposes the proud, it means that he stands in battle array. He's in a battle-like position towards the proud. You want to get God against you? You want to get set God in a battle-like opposition against you? Let pride fill your heart. Pride pushes away the hand of God, but it's Humility that attracts the charis, the fair favor, the unmerited, undeserved grace of God is attracted by people that are humble before God, people that bow before Him, people that are able to worship Him because they're not concerned about what other people are thinking around them, and they can express their own brokenness before an almighty God. Can I, can I just be honest with you? I am deeply, deeply perturbed and saddened by some of the attitudes and infighting that I see in Christianity these days. And what saddens me the most is not that they fall or not that there's character issues. That grieves my heart. But what saddens me the most sometimes is the response by the Christian community. The lambasting, the how could they, the throwing rocks. And people come to me and say, Pastor, how could they? And I say, are you serious? How could they? I mean, do you have the same flesh that I have? Because I absolutely understand how could they, because I could too in my brokenness. And by the grace of God, help me to stand, Lord Jesus. 
I think the proper response to a fallen person is getting on our knees and praying for that individual and asking that God would restore them and their family and the congregation and that God would spare us from the same sort of mistakes that the ugliness in our heart could easily fall to, but to rise up in judgment and criticism and rock throwing and to pile on to me is just not the spirit of Jesus. I think a spirit of humility, it expects the best in other people. It speaks the best of other people. Listen, can I tell you something? As a minister, as God is raising you to lead in the ministry that God has called you to, a spirit of humility, a spirit of humility does not believe that your camp in the body of Christ is the only camp. It acknowledges that there are other gospel-believing Christians that have the Holy Spirit inside of you that may disagree with the way you cross your T's and theologies and, and dot your I's, but if they are in the camp, in the fundamentals of the faith, our dispositions should be towards blessing and not towards fighting because they're not in your particular narrow camp. I've been a pastor in Chicago for a long time. I teach our pastors, your default mode needs to be blessing. If someone plants a church a block away from you that is a different denomination, you don't have to agree with everything. If they're teaching Jesus and preaching the gospel, I want you to go over, pray with them, welcome them, bless them. They are not our competitors. They're our partners in the faith, even though they may be in different camps. All I'm saying is that I believe that one of the greatest attacks of the enemies, even in spiritual Christian leaders, is a spirit of pride that causes us to behave in ways and attack in ways that are not lifting up to the name of Jesus Christ and the body of Christ. The Bible says that God opposes the proud. James chapter 4, which is a parallel passage, says, That is why Scripture said God, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up, but he shows favor to the humble. Basically, this parallel passage is simply saying to us, listen, the power of resisting the devil doesn't come in the power of your own strength. I've heard people quote this verse often, and they say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So they get in front of the mirror, and they say, I'm strong, I'm good, I'm confident, I know the word, I have authority, I have power. They pump themselves up. Hey, devil, get ready for me. And then they are surprise when they fall flat on their faith because they haven't read the first part of the verse. The first part of the verse is submit yourself therefore to God. And submitting to God means a posture of humility that comes under the authority of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and acknowledges that we are subservient to the King. And we submit our idiosyncrasies under the lordship of the one who is king of kings and lord of all. And it is in the power of submission that our authority comes. There was never a time that Jesus commanded a demon to flee or a 
a sick person to be healed or did a miracle of any kind that it wasn't accomplished. And yes, I know he was the all God and all man, but his power came through perfect submission to the Father. And he tells us that because he was in sync with the Father, in perfect harmony, in submission. I do nothing of my own accord, only that which the Father tells me to do. That's perfect submission. You want to resist a spiritual attack and you will find it. The greatest thing that you need to watch out according to this passage is we need to watch that there is no seed of pride that penetrates into our heart. Listen, you are in a institution that teaches the Bible and teaches theology and pumps you with some of the greatest, I, I'm a little biased, but some of the greatest Bible teachers and professors and faculties I think in this nation. But I want you never to mistake knowledge for maturity. Because scripture says knowledge puffeth up, but it's love that edifies. Do you know that you can gain a deep degree and spend hours and hours arguing the minutia of theology on your floor, but yet be extremely immature? And if you're not careful, you can become prideful. So next time you go to church and the pastor doesn't even have a Bible degree, it's easy for you to judge him, parcel out, and not receive anything, not because he has nothing to give, but because you're puffed up with knowledge and aren't able to receive what they have to give. Some of the greatest men and women on earth that are doing incredible things for the kingdom of God do not exist here in the Western world. They're in some of the countries where they don't have access to education like I have, that like we have, yet they are mammoth giants for the kingdom of God and have never had the possibility to be educated like you and I have been able to ed be educated. Never, never let your knowledge turn to pride. Scripture says pride comes before the fall. And then he goes on to say, not only that, but he goes right into this and he says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We're talking about spiritual attacks. So he, he says, humble yourselves first of all. And then he reminds us that as you humble yourself before God, there are things when you are being attacked under discouragement, under deception, under fear, we are to thrust off. This is an aggressive language. It's not just lay down. This is a thrusting off. And he says, thrust off your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You know, the Greek word for anxiety comes from the word meaning to divide, to divide. And here's the thing about anxiety. When you start to become anxious about something, it's really hard to focus. Have you noticed that? That if you're anxious about something, then your creativity diminishes, your focus diminishes. Why? Because anxiety divides your thinking. You're trying to concentrate on a conversation and, and anxiety comes in. You're trying to concentrate in chapel and anxiety comes in and what it does is you start chasing after those thoughts and it takes you away from the main thought, the main focus, and pretty soon your mind becomes divided in a bunch of different ways. Have you ever heard someone that's anxious say, I don't know, I'm so confused, I, I can't, I don't know, I'm just overwhelmed right now because they can't clearly think on the things they're supposed to think about because anxiety causes their mind to be divided and they chase after multiple realms. 
By the way, they tell us that if you go into a test with anxiety, with fear, with nervousness, that fear and anxiety actually shut down the creative process of thinking that you have. And so if you can change your attitude before a test, they've literally done studies that if you laugh before a test, chances are you'll do better on your test when you are not going into your test with anxiety. Now don't go into the test next time not having studied and says, you know, Dr. Job said if I laugh, I'll do good on my test. Now I didn't say that, you gotta study too. But it's the opposite of anxiety. Anxiety causes us not to be able to focus. And so what he's saying in this passage is throw all your anxiety. Someone uh, described worry, anxiety this way. A small trickle of fear that meanders throughout our mind until it cuts a channel into which all of our thoughts are drained. And if you are going to resist a spiritual attack. First of all, it starts with humility. Secondly, it goes to the fact that you cannot be strong in resisting a spiritual attack when you're overcome with anxiety. And he's telling, casting all your cares upon him. Why? Because the God of the universe actually cares about you. That should blow your mind. The God who's sovereign, who has nothing to challenge his omnipotence, who's transcendent, who's immutable, who's infinite, who lives, exists above time and space, that this God actually cares about what you worry about. Why does he care about it? Because it affects you and it affects you. He cares about it. Casting your cares upon him because he cares about you. And then Peter goes on to tell us that not only do embrace an attitude of humility, throw off anxiety, but he says, listen, verse 8, be alert and sober-minded. The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He reminds us to understand that we are to be alert. Alert means that we are aware of our surrounding and sober-minded, the opposite of someone whose judgment has been impaired because there is a real spiritual battle that's happening. He says, The enemy, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I believe there's a healthy balance in this. Some of you may come from a background that everything was a devil, everything was a demon, and everything that happened was a devil or a demon. You had a bad hair day, it was the devil a bad hair day. You sinned, you blame it on the devil, you fell, it was always the devil, you blew up, it was the devil. And you know what? I think when we give the devil too much credit, what happens is we don't take responsibility ourselves. There's some things that you need to stop blaming the devil for and you need to repent of yourself because he had nothing to do with what you decided to cooperate with. And so when you act like it's just a victim and I, hey, I'm just a pawn of the devil. No, 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 you... He, he can't do anything that you don't cooperate with. And so I think there's a camp that gives too much credence to the devil. But then sometimes there's the other camp that we act like we are, to a certain extent, people that have been left with the book and principles and theology, but we are practical atheists in the way we view the spirituality. We act like there's no spiritual world. 
Like that was true in the book of Acts, and it may be true in Africa, but in where we live, nothing is ever in the spiritual world. There's a healthy balance there in which we acknowledge the flesh, but we also acknowledge that there is a very real spiritual battle that exists. And that there are schemes of the enemy to try to derail you and that there is a real enemy out there. He calls him in scripture, by the way, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I love what Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says. After Jesus died and rose again, it says, he disarmed the powers and authorities. Now that should be encouragement to you. There is a roaring lion, but he has been disarmed. That means his weapons have been taken away from him. His ability to do harm has been, his weapons have been confiscated for the believer at the cross of Jesus, so the victory has been won there. It doesn't mean that the battle is real. You say, the one, then if he's been disarmed, what do we have to fear? And the Bible says he was made a public spectacle of them triumphant over by the cross. And I, I look at it like this. That abuser that was abusing that wife and, and just terrorizing her children and her kids, he's been finally put in jail. But if you've been around abused people long enough, you know that if that victim can still listen to the voice of the abuser, that victim will still be influenced by the abuser. They may be in jail. But if you allow them to speak, if you read the letters and take the phone calls, if you listen to the voice, then you will be influenced by the power that they have over you. And I believe that Scripture is saying something like that. Principalities and powers have been disarmed at the cross of Jesus Christ. However, I believe the weapons of the enemy tend to be fear, deception, and discouragement. And those all have to do with your thinking. And although we have victory at the cross of Jesus Christ, there is a sense in which we are still called, in verse 9, to resist him, standing firm in the faith. It's interesting that the apostle Peter says, resist him, stand firm in the faith, not stand firm in your faith, but stand firm in the body of truth that you're standing on. Know the word, know your identity, know the accomplished work on the cross of Jesus. Know that you're not earning or gaining anything. It's been paid in full. You need to get it, grab it, understand it. But listen, can I leave you with this last thought? He says, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. He's reminding us, he's recalling, reminding us, hey, you're not the only ones going through a difficult time. You're a part of a bigger family that's suffering throughout the world. There's not been a time in the history of Christianity where there hasn't been persecution leveled against the church of the living God. And can we put this in perspective a bit? I know you're saying, oh, Pastor Mark, I'm really struggling, you know? I came to Jesus, said yes to Jesus, and I got blocked by five people from Instagram. They used to tag me, they don't anymore. They used to invite me out, now they don't. I don't know how I'm gonna survive this. I don't wanna minimize your attack. <laughs> and your suffering. But can I be real with you? Right now as we speak, the average a day is 11 people a day 
11. 11 what? 11 people a day are killed in this world for being Christians. I'm not an expert in it, but Voice of the Martyr and others who track this tell us there is more people dying now than probably on almost any other time in history. Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the face of this earth. 2018, there was 4,300 people killed for following Christ, dragged out of homes, pastors beheaded, people killed, women raped, sold into slavery and then strangled and killed. Houses burned, 11 a day. Let's put it in perspective a little bit, folks. We live in a time, there are people, family, our family, brothers and sisters in Jesus. Yeah, you'll never know their name because the news will never publish their name. The fact that some 16-year-old girl is taken, raped, and then killed because she's a minority Christian in a uh, society that does not value them and feel like it's open hunting on them, you're not going to see that in the news. CNN is not going to talk about that. And Peter is simply reminding us this is not an abnormal, unusual thing. This is something that you should anticipate, expect, embrace. Part of being called to Jesus is that I'm called on mission with Jesus, living in a countercultural way that people will not always understand and in some societies will be severely persecuted. You are a part of that family, that tradition, that history. Never forget it. Living for Jesus under his protecting power when the spiritual attacks are all around us. Well, that's a great place to be, isn't it? Thank you, Pastor Mark, for this encouragement from the Apostle Peter today. And if you'd like to hear this program again, head to moodypresents.org where you can download an MP3 or sign up for our podcast. And of course, learn more about Moody Publishers. That's at moodypresents.org. I'm John Giger. Thanks for your company. Join us again next week for Moody Presents, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.